just because you love something and just because you're passionate about it, it's not enough. You know, love is not enough. Passion is not enough. You also have to put your time and your hard work. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. We're here today with NQ. How are you? Doing really good, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for being on. So got to take it back. Going back to your birth, did you like pop out in the delivery room and immediately start you know, dropping some poetry, getting snaps? How did it start? <laughs> and where well, are you born? Let's say, where were you born? Let's start with that. I was born in Santa Monica, where you live. Yeah. And, you know, raised there, never left pretty much. Nice. I went to San Fran State for a quick minute and then decided to come back and pursue art full time. And although I've traveled all around the world, Los Angeles is in my bones. Amen. We were just talking about that. I, I, th- I don't think I'd want to live any other place. So when you were like childhood, early childhood, did, were you immediately drawn to poetry as like when you first started talking? Like, was, were you into music? Like, where did that trigger hit? How was your like early childhood with your parents, et cetera? So my dad was not in the picture at all. Okay. And I didn't meet him until I was 15 years old. And we didn't have the best relationship even after we were able to connect. I can count on two hands at least how many times we were in the same room together. My mom's a school teacher uh-huh. and taught at Culver City yep. Junior High. She taught history and then she taught special education. And my mom's a really interesting person. She's from Flatbush, Brooklyn, was raised there in the 50s, and then decided to join the Peace Corps. She was in Liberia. And then she came back and, you know, marched with Martin Luther King. She was certainly into civil and equal rights. I thought you said that casually, like, yeah, you know, march with Martin Luther King. (laughs) Well, I'm not saying that she was marching arm in arm with him, but she was one of the people that was there. You know, she didn't stay at home. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, And then she decided that she wanted to help raise the next generation by being a teacher. And she wanted to follow her Southern California sunshine dreams. And so when she got pregnant, she moved out. And this is where I lived my life. And I'm definitely a a Cali boy. We grew up, I guess, on like Lincoln and Bay Street. You familiar? Of course. Yeah. So that was... Pretty central. Yes, exactly. And I don't really have a lot of memories of my childhood, to be honest. Like, so I don't really recall like whether or not I was eloquent or or rhythmic or rhyming when I was a kid or anything like that. But from what my mom tells me, she used to make up these lullabies. Uh-huh. And like I was very interested in maybe the way words sounded. But I didn't really fall in love with, I would say, rhyming until Parents Just Don't Understand by Will Smith. <laughs> and how old were you? I don't remember. Once again, I don't really have a, yeah. I have a range. Yeah. I mean, I was probably eight or nine or okay. 10, so I don't know. Like, yeah. Yeah. But I, I remember relating to the song. Yeah, great song. You know, I had heard Run DMC and all that stuff. And I, I loved, I loved it you know, but I loved all sorts of music and whatever would come on, I'd kind of jam out to. I didn't have like an older brother to like put me up on things. So I was just figuring it out. My mom used to play like, you know, Bette Midler and Frank yeah. Sinatra in the house. And 
anyway, so then I hear parents just don't understand. And I was like, man, I can relate to that. Yeah. I remember thinking parents just don't understand. They don't, you know? <laughs> so then we were going to visit my mom in, um, I'm sorry, not my mom, but our cousin in uh, New York. Mm-hmm. And I like begged my mom to go take me to one of the, you know, record stores or whatever. And I bought this single of parents just don't understand. And I went back to my cousin's house and I just put it in the boom box and I like played it and I would like stop. And then I'd write down a sentence and then I rewind and then I play it, stop. Right. And I wrote the whole entire song and then I just played it and then wrapped all of the lyrics. And I was in there for like four hours and there was something about it that felt right. And then, you know, just kind of took on a life of its own after that. And so again, you're eight, nine, 10 years old, somewhere in there. And did you go back to middle school, high school and start performing or like, where did it go from there? No, the first performance I had, actually this kid had gotten killed in a drive-by and he was like a friend of everyone. Everyone knew him, you know? And so I wrote something for him and then I like performed at a camp or something like that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was the first time I ever did something that I had written out loud and it was meant to, to honor him. So I remember I like started tearing up as I was doing it. And do you remember how old you were? Then I was like 13. Wow. Okay. So you started pretty early too. And and being, I mean, a 13 year old writing something that would bring you to tears and actually putting it to words and performing it. I feel like most teenagers and preteens are not that in touch with their own emotions and like expressing them that way. So that's, you know, where that came from? Like, that uh, Well, that, that came from trying to give you tribute to this person. Yeah. But I was always like a very sensitive kid and I never really felt like I belonged. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can relate to that or not, but like, I think it's common with people that are going down their unique path, so to speak. Yeah. I think not having a dad, especially like externalized, like a lot of my identity, I was always kind of like looking outside of myself for what I was supposed to be like, or what a man was supposed to be like, or Mm -hmm. what a young man was supposed to be like a boy. And so it just made me kind of ask a lot of questions. And then also my mom had gotten me a scholarship to private school when I was younger. And like a lot of the kids were really rich, you know, and we were not, and they all had two parents. And it was, I felt like I connected with everybody, mm-hmm. but I always felt a little bit different. And then I went to public school for junior high and high school. And I think I felt a little bit different there too. And it took me a second to kind of like settle in. And so I think I was always finding myself in situations where I was looking from the outside in Mm -hmm. and it made me very just aware of my thoughts and my emotions. And then I think that poetry and hip hop became my outlet for that more than anything else, you know? And so starting at 13, you performed, when was the point that you figured like, this is something I could actually pursue? Like I would want to do this for a living for the rest of my life kind of thing. Well, okay, they're the same, but they're also compartmentalized, you know, like hip hop and poetry, it's all about rhyming and rhythm and communication and performance, emotion. But for me, they were also very separate, you know, in terms of the hip hop side of things, I think when I was 15, we snuck into a club, 
me and my boys, we got into this club and they were older than me. And it was like an 18 and over club or something like that. And so they were doing like a rap battle on stage. And I had done a lot of battling too, just like battle kids at school. And then you leave school and then somebody's having a cipher and then you battle with them. And you just like start collecting these notches on your belt, you know? And there was a dude on stage and they were like, he was battling people and I just like got up and, and I started battling him and he was just so much bigger than me. Yeah. You know, it was like, it looked ridiculous that I would be battling this dude and I won and everyone, you know, it was like 250 people in the club or something and they all just went crazy. <laughs> and I remember that that was like the most empowered that I had ever felt in my life. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I just want to do that forever. And then when I was like, I don't know, 16 or 17, yep. I got invited to go to the UCLA Young Writers Retreat. The UCLA Young Writers Retreat would take kids from all over Los Angeles, different high schools. Mm-hmm. And they basically like, for the most part, paid for them. You could you would pay a little bit, but they really would hook you up to be able to go to this place in Lake Arrowhead it was like 100, 150 kids. And they would put on these writing workshops for like two or three days. And at the time, I was like, I'll just go meet girls. You know, like, I was like, not even really interested in the writing portion of it. I was always horrible in math, but I was always good with words. Uh-huh. So English, you know, it just came like a second, well, a first language, actually. <laughs> <laughs> So I go to this uh, UCLA Young Writers Retreat and I'm like sitting there on the first day and they had this poet, this guy, Jack Grapes, who's still around doing books and facilitating workshops. And he was our facilitator. And he went through this whole entire session with us where we learned how to write poetry. And I don't remember what he did And I don't remember what I wrote and I don't remember how it affected me. The only thing that I remember is that I thought, huh, I didn't know you could be a poet for a living. Yeah. Like it had never even occurred to me that that was even a job. Yeah. So that's where these two things were compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. And then I kept making albums and, you know, I thought I was going to be an MC for the rest of my life and have, you know, huge platinum records and sell out stadiums, but life has other plans. When I was 19, I wound up at this open mic for poets in Los Angeles called the Poetry Lounge. Mm -hmm. And it turns out to be the biggest, if not one of the biggest poetry lounges in the whole country. We were getting 350 people every single week forever, like for 15, 20 years that would just show up. And it was like church without religion. You know, people were getting celebrated for their vulnerability and talking about social issues, things that mattered to them. And so anyway, I just started doing my rapping acapella and people responded to it and started calling it poetry and I didn't correct them. And that was kind of the beginning of the poetic journey for me. This is a long ass answer, but I'll I'll tie it up with a bow. Okay, we got time. Yeah. Were you in San Francisco state, you said for, was that when you were there and did you like drop out at that point or? No. So I, when I, I graduated from high school, yep. went to San Francisco state for like, I don't know, six months or something like yep. that. And then came back. Then I went to SMC uh-huh. 
and they put me in remedial, remedial, remedial math. Yeah. They put me in the bottom math thing. Then they put me under that. (laughs) (laughs) It was the lowest possible. And there was so many like classes I had to pass to get up. And I just wasn't a great student, man. I didn't really care. I got in a fist fight on campus and I was like, I don't want to be here. Yeah. I wanted to pursue you know, my art full time. And so I did. And during the whole time that I would go back to the poetry lounge, I just had inner room period jobs that allowed me to kind of scrape by. I ended up getting on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam. We won the National Poetry Slam Championships. And one day I woke up and I realized I was more of a poet than an MC. And then I had to figure out how to monetize that and to come really full circle. Then I got a call from the UCLA Young Writers Retreat. Interesting. All of those years later, and they were like, hey, we would love for you to come and be the facilitator this year. And I said, that's incredible, because it had a pretty profound impact on me when I was a kid. And they were like, what? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I went there. And they were like, what are you talking about? Because they didn't know me as NQ. They knew me as Adam Schmalholtz. (laughs) So I guess the moral of the story is you're always right where you're supposed to be. I agree with you. Okay, so get out of college, you start pursuing this, you're working some odd jobs. During that transition, what point did you start making a living off this that you could really be a full time poet? Oh, man. I mean, I was past just shy of 30 or just past 30. So it took about a decade since college or a little over. Yeah. Uh, because I always like to like dive into the story, like what, what kind of jobs were you doing like during that time and what caused you to stick with it? Because a lot of people wouldn't give their passion so much time. And I think it's a good thing to be clear, obviously, and it's worked out. But a lot of people, you know, they'll give it a couple of years. I hear people all the time, whether it's acting or music or so, even sports, whatever. I'm going to give it two years. And if it doesn't work out, I'm out. And you gave it 12 before you were able to make a living out of it. So like, Two things on that. What were you doing to make a living during that time? And then what also like pushed you to stick with it? Or did you never have any doubts? No, I had a bunch of doubts. (laughs) I think you're human. That's why I asked. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's cute to be struggling when you're like in your early 20s because you're like a renaissance artist and you're figuring it out and girls don't care. And they're like, he's talented. And you're like, let me tell you something, man. When you're broke and you're like, 29, 30, it's not cute. <laughs> you know, you really have to take a look at yourself and say, is, is this working? Mm-hmm. I mean, originally I was, you know, I did everything from folding clothes at Gap. And then I, you know, started break dancing at bar mitzvahs. That's awesome. Now I wasn't like a good break dancer. Yeah. You know, I was like a pretty mediocre one but we had a dance crew and thing is I made 200 bucks you know for the four hours Mm -hmm. you show up and you do your thing and then you leave and 200 bucks at that time when you're 19 20 years old well that that winds up being 800 bucks a month maybe a thousand if you get an extra gig and you can kind of scrape by on that you know not anymore but at the time you could And then after that, I worked as a night receptionist because I was just like writing the whole entire time. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I ran the Westwood Rec Center. Like literally, I like shut down the gyms at night and handled racquetball and would break up fights. And, you know, people would have questions about their kids in the classes and the summer camps. And I would just answer phones and I would rhyme, literally. And then when I was like 26, I decided I was going to go full time. 
Mm-hmm. And so I did, and I was really scraping by, you know, mm-hmm. you'd get like $500 gig here, you know, a thousand dollar gig there. Yeah. You know, I remember somebody owed me $50 from a gig and I drove to their house. Yeah. Like I needed it. Yeah. You know, change in the couch type stuff. And I just basically like kept going because I didn't have a plan B. I hadn't finished college. You know, I I didn't really have anything else that I wanted to do. And I was also just obsessed, Eric. Like there was something that no matter how much I wanted to quit, I just kept writing new pieces and I kept performing them places and people kept responding. So even though I wasn't getting the monetary validation, I was getting other validation. Yeah. You say this whole story with a smile on your face. When you were talking about the struggling and the change in the couch, you got a smile, which I think most people don't understand. Is there like a almost a nostalgia to that time where it was like so simple and you're just figuring out that little next step. Like it's hard times, don't get me wrong, like objectively, but it's, I don't know, it seems like there's almost a positive emotion associated with that time. Well, because hopefully if you're living life right, everything that you look back on will have a positive nostalgia. Touche. You look back and you think, okay, even if I don't understand it, I'm grateful that it happened because it's made me who I am. Yeah. Those specific times, you could also argue that when you're closer to survival, things are simpler. I was gonna say, I went through similar where it was like, I, I had a credit card that went back in 2004. I remember calling the credit card company and like with my buddies, I was 18 and they're like, how much money do you make a year? And I said, a million dollars, I made no money. <laughs> And they went, okay, we've approved you for a $25,000 a month credit limit credit card. And I'm like, thank you. And they sent this thing to me. So I get out of college and I just loaded the thing. I literally maxed the thing out, just trying to like live way beyond my means. And so I get to the end of every month. I had a credit card, minimum credit card bill due that I had to pay and I'd have no money in the bank. And I'd like find whatever I could in the fridge, similar like change in the couch to figure out that last week every month. And I do look back at that positively because I also think, there's a freedom in knowing that you can deal with that. Like, even if you get to that level of broke, it's like, yeah, but I've been through that. It's not, it's not fun. It's not that bad though. It's not devastating. And you figure it out. Like I have that, that's why I asked is because I have that same kind of thought back to that where I mean, end of literally the last week of every month, I had no, I was broker than broke. I was 25 grand in debt with a credit card bill due and no cash in the bank. But I think it would be devastating now. I think that you look back on it from this memory of who you were at that time, from the age that you were at that time. Yeah. You know, obviously you have different responsibilities now. I was looking at a documentary the other day and part of the documentary kind of explored this woman that does emotional and mental therapy around homeless people who have finally gotten temporary housing. Mm -hmm. And what she said is that oftentimes when people are living on the street, they're so close to survival and they're so focused on whatever they need to do next that they actually don't have time to deal with some of the traumas that they have experienced because they have to focus on shelter or safety or their next meal. And when they get you know, temporary housing, she said all this stuff really starts to come up. So you know, I think that was a time in my life And I think this is another time in my life. And hopefully I'll look back on this time with nostalgia 
And also, I guess things come up when you have space for them. Yeah, that makes sense. And so 31, you start really making a living with this. When was kind of the next inflection point that you felt like, wow, I've, I, I, when's the I've made it feeling come in or has it come in? I don't, I don't feel like that now. I mean, no, okay. no I, I, you know, I don't know. Sometimes people read my bio and I'm like, who's that? <laughs> a little imposter syndrome. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, it's not, it's not imposter syndrome. I know. I don't mean to push back just to push back, but it's not, it's, it's, I don't feel like an imposter. I know that I'm great at what I do. I know I've worked really hard for it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it just came to me naturally. And I'm like, Oh, I got that. I don't look at my talent like that at all. It's been, you know, outlier hours times two or three at this point, but I do have this like separation from my bio or the accomplishments that I've made because I know the thousand hidden heartbreaks that it took to make one of those things come true. Yeah. You know, you, you know what's happening behind the curtain. And so I'm not so impressed with my accolades. Yeah. I'm, I'm proud of them. Yeah. But I'm not impressed by them. I get the distinction and I think it's important. I I have the same feeling. It's like, it's an honor and it's, as you said, there's a pride with it, but it's not like it makes you feel like you, it's not, it it, it is, it can be deserved, but it's not, it doesn't make you better. And that's, I totally agree. And so going back to kind of that next stage, like 31 making a living was, is there another point where you felt like you hit sort of an inflection point? It doesn't have to be that you made it, but like that another inflection point where you're like, this is any of that, whether it's that time you were introduced to bio or an accolade you did get that felt like a milestone. Well, so during that period of time, I wasn't even starting to make money on poetry. What ended up happening was I was doing all these shows around Los Angeles. Like I would just do 200 person shows and we'd sell out. You know, but it wasn't easy. Like I had to do the flyers and da 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 da. But I sold out like twenty of them, and I would always put up different material, and they were like quite the scene. And you know, it was it was cool. It was interesting, and people responding to it. And then I had a production company that ended up coming to one of the shows, and the production company made like all sorts of music. So they invited me to come down, and I started writing lyrics for other pop artists, basically. Uh And that was where I started making money. Yeah. Is they signed me to a publishing deal. And the first one I wrote, I think like Miley Cyrus ended up singing it. And, and then she did it on the billboard awards. And then the next one, I was able to like co-write Selena Gomez, love you like a love song. And, you know, I wasn't even really listening to these artists, like personally, but it was an opportunity to be creative in a new way. And Mm -hmm. I had to like monetize my talents in some form or fashion. I was just yep. kind of tired of being broke. And, and there's something um, about being open. Yeah. Like a lot of people get so focused where I have friends that are musicians that are like, no, I'm going to do it my way this way. And they're, you know, in their forties now and still doing it their way. No one else is listening, but you know, it's, there's something to be said about also hearing like going not on a say least, least path of resistance, but taking the opportunity when it arises too, and not being stubborn about it. Yeah. Look, if you're holding on to the rocks and you're in the river, yeah, it's a giant waste of energy. Yeah. Because yeah. you're not going to pull yourself. Uh, right. you, you know, as might as you just kind of turn around and float and, you know, look where you want to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but also kind of like 
trust the river a little bit. And I think if, if you don't, you can wind up holding onto rocks your whole entire life. I think like when I look back at that particular situation of songwriting, and now I've written like probably over 50 Disney television movie songs over the years and had gold records and platinum records, you know, things that I never would have imagined myself doing when I was like battling somebody, somebody on stage when I was a kid. But those things made me a better artist yeah. because my poetry is very choppy and rhythmic and I can fit so much information into one poem and it's about me or something that bothers me in the world, something social or political, you know, whereas like when I'm writing something for an artist, and by the way, I've also since written for Foster the People and Aloe Black, and I've had, you know, a wide range of experience as a songwriter now, but I basically have to use my imagination <laughs> to fit my truth into someone else's truth and I have to use less words. So I have to have concepts that are deep and simple. Like if you're writing a pop song, you don't want someone to think very much, but you do want it to be deep so that they can return to it over and over and over again so that it has some layers in it. And so those are tools that I ended up having from those experiences of songwriting that I would not have had if I never got into it. And when I went back to my poetry, those tools were still there. So I was able to kind of like use them in my own work. And I think it made me a better artist. That's awesome. And so a couple more questions for you, man. Number one, what's next? You've got all this going on. You're starting to explore it. We were talking before this, you know, fix kind of the next phase. What do you have in mind? What do you think's kind of coming down the road for you? Or what do you want to be? Yeah, I mean, look, we just came out with this book, Inquire Within. It's about a year old now, but the pandemic was like, thank you, man. The pandemic was like the never ending now. So it's really yeah. hard to know what my timeline is. And then I do all of these company and corporate shows now. I mean, I literally, before the pandemic, was doing 60 to you know 70 shows a year, traveling around the country and the world doing keynote speeches, and then facilitating these poetry workshops. And I love doing that. And we've started to do them online as well. So now I've been like getting communities together to do these online workshops that are just fans of mine. And then I'm also getting hired to come in and, and do companies. So uh, I was in yours in 2016 on Summit at Sea. I did oh, awesome. Wow, yeah. that's so crazy, yeah. bro. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was great. That's awesome that you're doing that because I really enjoyed it. And as a guy that like, yeah, I mean, I think I'd roll my eyes a little bit of poetry in high school and always sure. loved music. So I respect it. And now I'm a little more mature that I can respect it. But yeah, it was a, it was awesome to sit down and do that as someone that's very left brain for the most part these days. Was it right brain? No, it's not right. We're good. <laughs> Yeah. And so last question for you is someone that, again, really stuck with it a lot more than most people do and really pursued your passion. And now, I mean, you glazed over it a little bit, but you gave some anecdotes like platinum and gold records, you know, getting to tour around doing poetry, getting paid well and doing what you love. What would be your advice for someone that's just starting out that has dreams of their own, like something that you don't think that they've heard that you wish you were told or you were told that helped you get through the hard times, so to speak? I think that you just have to realize that there is no one like you. You're the only you in the entire universe. I mean, there's, you know, 8 billion people on the planet. And so we're all as unique as uh, snowflakes, but we're falling with 
eight billion other snowflakes and <laughs> melting on a snowbank. <laughs> <laughs> but but we're still miracles, each one. And nobody has your specific voice or your specific experience or your specific perspective. And so I would say just trust yourself and then trust life. Faith is a conscious choice, you know? So you have to trust the river and you have to float with it. And then the last thing is you have to work really hard. You have to put your love and your time into your passion. And just because you love something and just because you're passionate about it, it's not enough. You know, love is not enough. Passion is not enough. You also have to put your time and your hard work. So know that your voice is unique, have faith in life and work harder than everybody else. Amen. Well, NQ, thank you so much for coming on. This has been awesome. Thanks, buddy. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.